All right, good morning, church. Good morning. Hi, Ed. Hi, Jake. We, uh, I'm excited because we're in a new series, um, and, that we, and I talked about this the last couple of weeks. These are called Vision Sundays, and we are spending um, several weeks talking about where we're going as a church, and, uh, but before we do that, we need to talk about who we are as a church. Um, this week, we're talking about who we are. Next week, where we're going. And then the week after that, we're going to talk about how we get there. So um, I'm really excited about this. Um, the, uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, and then we'll spend some time in 2 Timothy as well. But 1 Corinthians 15 is the first. If you want to turn to something in your Bibles, that's where you could turn. But before that, I want to talk to you a little bit about the idea of good news uh, there are a couple times in my life when I have been given really good news. Um, I mean, I, I think we all hopefully can think of a time when that's been the case for us. I remember um, both of our children are adopted, and I remember when we were adopting our son, Tegan. Um, we kind of, um, there was a bunch of paperwork involved, and then once we submitted that, they said, you know, maybe in a couple of months you'll get a phone call, and then you can go, you can go meet him. And um, and a couple of months went by, and more time went by, and just when we were expecting to get that phone call, I got another phone call instead that said, sorry, but um, things are really slowing down with this whole process, um, and so it's probably going to be another six months before you get that phone call that you're waiting for, which is just such a devastating call to get. Um, and then six months would go by, and I, we would think, here it comes, we're, it's happening, it's going to be soon, we're going to hear about, about our kid, and then... Um, and then they would call again and say, we're sorry, but it's going to be another six months. You're going to have to wait. And it happened again and again to where this process that we thought would be about six months long ended up taking like two and a half years and almost three years to start to finish. And as it got longer and longer, more stretched out, you know, there wasn't a point where we, I think, really got like fearful or doubted. Like we, does God want us to, I don't know, just kind of like do something else, or is this what he wants? And we were very clear, this is where God's leading us and what he wants us to do, but it's just, we gotta wait and we gotta take some time. And so I'll never forget the morning that I got the phone call. They woke me up at 9.30 in the morning. Can you believe it? <laughs> With this phone call. And they go, and they go, hey, Ed, um, that's girl Amanda. She says, I've got, I've got wonderful news for you. And I was like, this better be the phone call I'm hoping for, because if not, she's like doing a bad job at this phone call right, off the, right out of the gate. She said, we have a referral for you, and, um, and I want to tell you guys all about it. I'm so excited. And I was like, okay, my wife is still sleeping. You called us really early, so <laughs> can I call you right back? And uh, just, you know, you know, you know, do my hair or whatever, call you right back. She said, okay, sure. So I have the phone. I'm like, Ellie, we're getting this. We got a referral call. So she gets up, you know, and like, you know, go downstairs, sit on the couch, call her on speakerphone. And then she, she tells us about our son, Tegan. And she says, it's, he's, he's a boy. And, you know, it's how old he is. And then she sends us some pictures of him and tells us his story. And it's, it's this incredible moment of like, this is, this is it, you know. And it was just the best news ever. It was like such a, such a great day, believe it or not from that point on. And it was just a few months after that until we got to actually meet him for the first time. And, um, and while he wasn't in love at first sight, you know, um, he just kind of looked like that for a long time. Um, you know, we certainly were. And I remember our daughter, Davy, who, um, when she was born, um, Ella, you know, we got to be there in the hospital as she was born. And um, I had like the easiest you know, like dad experience ever. I was just sitting in an empty hospital room on my phone and waiting for Ellie to come back with a healthy baby girl. Um, she was kind of, Ellie would get to be in there for the birth, but then was going to come back in with Davy to our hospital room afterwards. And there had been some complications and her mom had to get rushed into delivery and to have a C-section, an emergency C-section. And so those of you who have been a part of a childbirth, you know how even if you think everything's going to be, you know, I'm not stressed about it. I'm not worried about it. When the time comes, even if it goes smoothly, there's all these thoughts and fears that come up out of nowhere and you go, oh, wait a second, this is actually feels like a, like, like this could potentially be a really scary situation. And so there's that moment, however long it is for you, where you get kind of afraid, you know? And so I'm uh, not trying to freak out any, any, any soon to be parents here, but you know, it's just, it might, it might, you might feel that. Um, so I, so I remember Ellie bringing Davy in, they, they, they brought her in and, uh, and she had, I mean, she was, she was like 30 seconds old, you know, and, uh, and here she is. And they said, she's healthy and she's doing great. And it was like the best news ever, right? I mean, good news. Okay. There's like good news. There's great news. You know, there's like, oh good. We get to eat at my favorite restaurant. Good news. And then there's like, 
that kind of good news that just changes everything for you. And it feels like your whole life is hinging in some sense on that good news, right? Um, what I love about the Bible is that it is filled with good news. It is filled with this kind of good news. The word that, that, that uh, well, to give you an idea of like what I'm talking about, I want to share with you for a second before we get into our passage this morning about this, about this good news. It starts with the idea that, um, that God, um, who, who existed as one being but three persons, miraculously really, is, uh, has forever just existed, um, kind of relating to himself. And there was a point at which God said, you know what I would enjoy, and you know what would bring me glory, is to create people that I could have a relationship with. And so all of creation happened because God said, I want to have a relationship with people. I want to love them and I want them to love me back. And that's the whole reason that all this stuff is around us, that anything, that, that, that physical like existence is here. Um, and so he, he makes man and, um, and, and makes woman and says, it's good. This is really good. This is as I intended it, like we talked about a few weeks ago. Uh, or about last week, and he says, um, all you have to do is just trust me. And he's given us, you know, he's, he gives man every reason to trust him. He takes complete care of us. He provides everything we need. We live in paradise. But of course, there's a tree, right? And, uh, and for some reason, uh, it was a good idea to put the tree apparently right in the middle of the garden, right? And so um, as the man and woman go to reach of the good tree, they have to make a choice. They have to decide, do I trust him? Do I trust God, who's given me every reason to trust him? And at one point, man and woman say, no, I don't. I doubt him. It's not because they were so hungry and that was the first tree they could get to. It was because they said, I'm not sure that God isn't maybe just holding out on us. And so begins like this good, wonderful God and these people who rebel against him. But it wasn't just them, because we read about throughout the Bible that it's not just them, right? It's other people. We hear stories of individuals, people killing their own family. We hear stories of communities, entire groups of people corrupted by this kind of rebellion and distrust. And we hear about entire, like the entire population, ultimately, of all God's creation, all man, all women, like um, affected by this and choosing, choosing really to continue to rebel. And God is so good. He's so good that in his goodness, he says, I'm going to pursue these people. And that's what we read about. We don't just start reading about it in like the beginning of Matthew or something. We read about it throughout the Bible. God again, goes to his people again, goes to his people again, goes to them, makes a way, like provides a way, right? even in the midst of disobedience and rebellion, says, I'm going to keep seeking these people and I'm going to keep providing a way. But ultimately, there needed to be like the way. At which point God says, I'm going to, I'm, the sun will come down to be physically like incarnate in flesh. Now, now, the very act of coming and living in the flesh is humiliating in the sense that like you're God and you choose to allow so much of what makes you God to be veiled by just living in the flesh for a while. So that very act of just coming and living on earth is humbling. But, but then imagine if somebody were to say, hey, they're making a movie and the premise of the movie is God comes to earth and lives like a man. How epic would that movie be, right? Not exactly what you expect when you hear and read about Jesus, right? Because the life that he lives is one of further humiliation, one of service, one of saying, I'm going to give of myself for these people. He brings people around him, he heals them and loves them and, and does so much for us and ultimately communicates to us and tells us through his ministry and his, and his message that there is a way that you, you can be restored to the Father. The, the greatest thing that he does over all the healing and all the miraculous things that he does, the greatest thing is he forgives people of their sin and he says that it can be as it was intended. And then he suffers the ultimate humiliation and suffering. He's, he dies on a cross after being beaten and tortured. Now, the thing about Jesus that we have to understand is that the single most important thing to Jesus Christ is his relationship with the Father. 
That is everything to him. That's why he was able to live and be humble, but just say, I'm serving the Father. It's for the glory of the Father. And the relationship he had with God is a relationship we're meant to have with God that none of us have ever really experienced yet in that it is, it is all that Jesus is about to be connected to the Father and to bring glory to the Father. And so why did he sweat blood? Why was he so fearful to the point of death? Why was he so afraid of what was coming and yet still went into it? Because he knew that there would be a moment, and there was, when he would be forsaken. When the most important thing to him, his connection to the Father, even that was gone. Because Jesus could lose the people, and he could lose the physical body, and he could lose everything else, but at least he's connected to his Father. And then for the first time in all of existence, in all of time, in all of everything, the son is forsaken by the father. And even in that moment, he says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so the good news of the Bible is that he's resurrected. And as Hebrews says, his sacrifice that he brings to the father, God says, this is pleasing to me. This is good. This does it. This takes care of it. And so the good news is now there's life. Now there's freedom. Now there is forgiveness. We can now repent of our sins. We can trust in Christ. We can live a new life with God now and forever. This is very good news. The good news about a God who's some, who doesn't lower his standard, who doesn't change who he is, who doesn't change the expectation of us and what it means to be good. And yet, just as we sang, didn't want heaven without us and brings heaven down. This is good news. This is the gospel. This is the gospel, meaning the good news. And it's a lot bigger, and it matters a lot more for us than we think. In 1 Corinthians 15, this is what Paul says to the church in Corinth. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. I'm going to read that one more time. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. And if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul's saying something very important. He's saying the gospel matters for you in all things. And it matters because it is your past, it is your present, and it is your future. The gospel I preached to you is one in which you received in the past. Otherwise, I could not speak to you as a part of the church. So it is a part of your past, and it's what, it's what essentially makes life even possible for you. But it is also the gospel in which you stand now, presently. It is what you're standing on. It's the foundation your life must be built on. And it is by which you are being saved in the future, which means there is a power in the gospel. And he says that in Romans 1. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because of the power. I'm not ashamed because there's power in the gospel. That power is actually the power that fuels everything that comes from this point on. The gospel makes it all happen. So it matters in the past, it matters in the present, it matters in the future. We are a church that exists because of the gospel, lives in the power of the gospel, and hopes in the continuing work of the gospel. And the Bible has all kinds of good things in it. It has historical accounts of things that matter a lot, like creation and man and God interacting and relating to one another for thousands and thousands of years. It has wisdom literature that tells us what is wise and what is foolish and how we can live. It has um, the, the life and the narrative and the interactions of Jesus with so many different people. It shows us so much about how things ought to be and about how things um, are, really. It shows us about how God intended and what's going to happen even in the future. But all of the Bible and points all of the Bible points to and relates to the overall message. And that message, that core, that heart that runs throughout is the gospel. The gospel is throughout scripture. The good news is that it tells us exactly the way things really are in this world and exactly what God is doing about it. The gospel is bigger than many of us think it is. 
It is not just past if you're a believer. And it is not just that thing maybe in the future for a non-believer. The gospel, according to Paul, applies to every aspect of the Christian's life. The gospel that he preached, which means the one that they heard, not just some vague sort of idea of what a gospel could be, but the gospel he preached to them that they heard and received, that it is a part of all of life and it is a part of everything moving forward. The gospel is essential. It is essential to the Christian life, not just entrance to the Christian life, but it is essential to the Christian life. If we are ever not living in the truth of the gospel, it's because we are living in the truth of something else that is not the gospel. But there's only two options. We are either living on the power of the gospel or we're living on the power of something else. We're hoping in the future that the gospel promises and that the gospel makes possible, or we're hoping in something else. We often get confused the idea of what something that is essential is and the difference between something that's essential and maybe something that's basic, because these are two very different things. If you were to take a bicycle, for example, a bicycle, what is the most essential thing, or we'll say what are the most essential things that make a bicycle a bicycle? Two wheels. That's what makes it a bicycle. You can change everything else about it, but without two wheels, it's not a bicycle. And so that is essential to what it is to be a bicycle. Now, you might be really into cycling, and if you are, you probably have a whole lot more stuff other than a bicycle, okay? You've got what I'll call an outfit. You've got gear. You've got special food you eat. You've got stuff that you drink. You've got lots of bicycles. You probably go to classes sometimes where you ride things that look kind of like bicycles but definitely don't have wheels, and it's all to help you when you're riding your bicycle. But the fact of the matter is, if the two wheels on your bicycle don't work, if they're not taken care of, then you have lost something essential and you can no longer move. So the essential things are not the basic things. Basic things are the things that we move on from, right? You learn the basic things in life and then you move on to other things. And they were important and they served a function and a purpose at a time. But you move past them because that's part of growing up and that's part of maturing. But not essential things. Essential things you go back to all the time because if they're not there, then it's not there. If they're not there, then it won't work. And this is what the gospel is. It's essential. It's not just something from the past. It's something right now. And it's something that we have to understand moving forward as an individual and as a church. So scripture tells us throughout how big and essential the gospel is, but it also tells us something else about the gospel that we read again and again in so many different forms and in so many different warnings and in so many different encouragements. And it's this that Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy as he's preparing him for ministry. This is really small, so I probably should give you more time to look it up. If you want to look it up right now, go for it. But uh, I'm going to start reading. So uh, first, 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 14. Paul tells Timothy this. He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. That very last part, that second part of one verse, he says, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul's encouragement to Timothy is to guard the gospel, that thing that exists within a believer, to guard it that has been deposited, to guard it and to keep it safe, because the gospel is not just essential, scripture also tells us that the gospel is corruptible. The gospel can be corrupted. 
that we can get it wrong, that it can be changed. And so as a result, Paul's encouragement to Timothy, and we read about this throughout Scripture, not just in that one instance, is guard, protect this thing. Because if you don't, everything else will be off. It is the plumb line. It is the thing that shows you what's up and what's down and what's left and right. And without this compass, without this gospel, everything else will ultimately be off. The gospel must be guarded and protected and kept intact because apparently it will be constantly under attack. Apparently the gospel itself will be under attack. And this is true. There's so many ways, there's so many ways in which the gospel is distorted and messed up, right? The gospel can be, the purity of it can be polluted. We read about that in Galatians. As people began adding little things to the gospel and Paul did not handle that very well. I mean, he handled it very well, but he was not very happy as he came to them and he said, don't pollute this gospel. Don't add anything to it. They're like, oh, it's just a little rule and it just helps us and it's from our tradition. People really like it, I think, and it's really helping the church. And he says, don't add anything to this gospel because if you pollute it, then it will no longer be the gospel. And he gives them very strong warnings and he, and he chastises the church for, for allowing people to come in who would say, yeah, the gospel's good, but it's not quite complete until we add some other things. The freedom of the gospel can be exploited. The freedom and grace that comes from the gospel can be taken so far that Paul has to defend against that. In Romans, when, when, people, when, he, when he says, I, people are coming and they're telling me, oh, great, so I'm forgiven. And if I sin, God forgives me. And then he looks good. And so can I just go on sinning? And he says, no. <laughs> that even the freedom of the gospel can be exploited and expanded to a degree that the gospel itself now is not the gospel anymore. And in doing so, you're taking away from the gospel rather than adding to it. The price of the gospel can be minimized. The price of what it costs us or what it cost Christ himself. We can minimize, we can minimize what Jesus had to do in the, in, in the gospel. We can minimize that that had to happen, that sacrifice had to be made and, and that it had to be paid. We can, we can minimize what, what we have to do in dying to ourselves and what repentance really looks like because it's so much easier, right, to have a gospel where we just leave that part of it out. I mean, think about how many more people, right, will accept it. But what Paul says is that if you don't guard the deposit, it doesn't matter that they're accepting it. It doesn't matter that they're grabbing onto something. Because if it's not the gospel, then it's not going to lead them to truth. One of the biggest reasons why people in the church changed the gospel was because they wanted other people to more easily accept it. And so he says, as, their, as one of their leaders, he says, don't do that. The reach of the gospel can be restricted. Some people need it, we say. The gospel, that person needs Jesus, right? Those people need Jesus. They need Jesus. The broken, the suffering, the hurting, the weak, the needy, the lowly. This is why it's so incredible that when Jesus is visited in the night by a man named Nicodemus, who's a religious leader, who knows the answers, who follows the rules, whose life is so put together that like people respect him in this community, he comes to Jesus going, Jesus, what are you talking about? And Jesus says, you have to be born again. What do we think of when we think of born-again Christians and people who have to be born again? We think of people who need a new start, right? We think of people who need a new way to start life. Things are messed up. Things are a mess. Be born again. You can start over fresh. Everyone will forgive you and everything will be okay and you can have a new lease on life. But for all the people who are doing great, they don't really need the gospel all that much. Nicodemus did. Jesus said, you have to be born again. And it was so hard for him to wrap his mind around that Jesus said, you honestly just have to trust me and take a step. You have to look at what I've done and see that that's true, and so trust me that this is true, because it made no sense to him that a person who was in high regard and high standing to the rest of the people in his community might need to somehow die to himself and be born again. The purity of the gospel is critical. 
And if we don't guard it, if we don't protect it, the very thing that brings us life, the very thing that gives us life and has us hope, can instead start to harm us. A couple of years ago, there was a town in Michigan called Flint. And, uh, and in 2014, I think, they decided, because they run out of money, basically, that instead of getting their drinking water from a lake 70 miles away, that they would tap into the Flint River. Which people looked at and said, are you sure that's such a good idea? And they said, yeah, it'll be great. It'll be a great idea. We'll save money. We're independent now, more of ourselves. We're providing for ourselves for generations to come. And then people started to get sick. They were even, before that happened, the mayor, the mayor would like pour water out of the tap and drink it and say, see, everything's fine. And then a doctor started to notice that children were getting sick, that people were getting sick. And so they measured the lead in their blood and they began to realize that because they hadn't been properly treating the water and taking it from somewhere bad, that it was corroding the very pipes that it was coming through. And so some pipes were, had lead, and it was bringing lead into the water, and children were drinking lead every single day. And to others, it was, it, was, it was eroding iron, and they were getting too much iron in their body, and they were drinking iron every single day. And it got so bad that families who had money had to rent apartments outside of Flint and share Every night of the week, a different family would go to the apartment and take baths and get their water and cook their meals and get their, and get, get their bottles of water and take them home. They couldn't even bathe their children in the water of Flint. It was declared a natural, it was declared a state of emergency. Every, people resigned, people were, criminal charges were brought against the very people who were supposed to be protecting them, keeping it pure. The water, the very thing that you need for life, that you take for granted the purity of it, if it is not taken care of, what happens? It brings sickness and it brings death. And so you guard and protect that thing that brings life. You make sure that it is as it needs to be and that it is as pure as possible. Now, for many of us, we look at this, what Paul's saying to Timothy, and we say, okay, but he's saying it to a pastor, right? So, Ed, it's your job. Do it. Good. Say, let's, let's go home. Bye, right? Just make sure you don't mess it up. Don't put it on us, right? And that, you could have said that back then. But bad news, everybody. See this thing? I think you all have one, right? So now we live in a world and a society, and, and we're so grateful for the fact that we, we, Take in God's word for ourselves. And we have a million resources for God's word. And we have a million books written by a million people about what they think of God's word and what God told them that day in his word. And these are not bad things, but as we interact with God's word ourselves, or for many of us, as we don't interact with God's word ourselves, we must recognize that the gospel is what it is and it cannot be changed. And we have to be on guard and guard that deposit that exists within our hearts if you're a believer. The gospel speaks to an ongoing struggle with sin and an ongoing need for grace. That is what it tells us exists until heaven. And as a result of that, it is always relevant. Always. It is always the most relevant thing the gospel of Jesus. It is always the solution. Always. And it is always life. It is what will bring life. There's a book that I read a while ago by this, I think he was a psychiatrist and like a pastor, and he wrote um, a book called You Are What You Love, about how the very things that we love tell us who we really are. And he, and he talks about this Russian film that he saw years ago that takes place in this post-apocalyptic world where everything, you know, is not fun, as in post-apocalyptic worlds often are. And it's a story about these two guys who are on a journey being led by this wise man who's promised to be leading them to something that will take care of all their problems. And he leads these two men by the end to a room, outside the door of a room. And he says, within this room, you, will, you, you are about to experience um, the, the greatest thing that you will ever experience in your life. He said, in this room, you will find the thing that you most desire. And for people living at a time like that, in a place like that, this was the best news that they could possibly hear until one man realized, he said, what if I don't know what I desire? And he said, that's the beauty of this room. It knows what you desire most, and it will give you that. And then the other man realized, I don't know if I want to go in this room. I don't know if what I think I desire, if what I think I love the most is what I really desire. 
and what I really love the most. And they didn't go in the room for fear of what they would find. You see, what the gospel does is it shows us the idols that we have. And it is the only answer to those idols, and it is the only thing that speaks to those idols. It illuminates them. The fallenness of our heart manifests itself in these constant strategies that we have to atone ourselves, to make up for what we've done. The natural default mode of the human heart, and this includes the Christian heart, is restless heart wandering, looking to something to latch onto for significance, to know we matter, to feel okay about ourselves. This tendency is very subtle, but it's very difficult to root out. But the truth is that we sin. We are sick because of this. And so as one author put it, he said, when my flesh yearns for some prohibited thing, I must die. When called to do something I don't want to do, I must die. When I wish to be selfish and serve no one, I must die. When shattering by hardships, when shattered by hardships, I despise, I must die. When wanting to cling to the wrongs done against me, I must die. When wishing to keep besetting sins secret, I must die. When wants that are borderline needs are left unmet, I must die. When dreams that are good feel shoved aside, I must die. The gospel involves dying to ourselves because of the idols that exist in our lives and that we continue to wrestle through and wrestle with. This is why I think, I mean, for me personally, there's no more profound example of the gospel than the parable of the prodigal son. Now, we know it is the prodigal son because uh, religious people read it, but it's really not the prodigal son even. It's the gracious father. It's a parable about a gracious father. And the reason it shouldn't be called the prodigal son is because it's actually about two sons. And in this parable, the first son, the youngest son, he decides freedom and life will not be found here with my father. And so I will leave and I must leave. And he tells his father he wants his inheritance and he goes and he squanders it all on a life of freedom and a life of pleasure. And he comes crawling back praying and hoping that his father would simply let him be a servant in his house. And what does the father do? But he runs out to meet his son. He throws a robe on him. He gives him his ring. He says, you're home. He runs out to meet him. And he says, we're throwing you a party because I'm glad you're back. And I welcome you back. And then there's the other brother who pulls dad out of the party and says, you got to be kidding me. I've been here this whole time. And he says, he says, I've been slaving away for you. That's kind of a red flag right there. Because he probably was the best servant. He probably did do the best job that anybody could possibly do of serving his father. And yet he was as far from the father as the brother who left. You see... We will always be torn to be led to be one of those. Some of us are more inclined to want freedom and to run. And some of us are more inclined to want to justify ourselves as we stay. But the fact of the matter is, we will struggle in this life to be, or not to be, one of those two brothers. And this is why we need the gospel. This is why we didn't just need it before, but why we need it today and why we're going to need it tomorrow. Because our tendency is either going to be we're going to want to go and have freedom on our own or we're going to want to stay and show how good we are and show that we can do it and that we can maybe do it the best and that the Father owes us. Because is there any better feeling than knowing that the Father owes you something? There is. It's called a relationship with the Father. And what we see in this is that the nature of the gospel is that it is offensive to us. The truth of the gospel is offensive. And we like saying that sometimes when we apply it to other people, right? The gospel is offensive, right? To people, right? People are offended by the gospel. I know it. I think it's great. I think it's beautiful. I think it's wonderful. Not all the time you don't. Because what the gospel shows us 
is just as hard for us to hear today oftentimes as it was a year ago or two years ago. Because the gospel calls us to die to ourselves. It points out to us that we're one of those brothers at times. And so because the gospel is by nature offensive to our ears and to our hearts, we do everything that we can to be as unoffensive as possible with each other and with everyone outside. We say, this is going to be tough enough. I'm going to make it as easy as I can over here. And as I bring it to my fellow brother or sister in Christ, as I bring it to someone outside the walls of the church, I'm going to do so knowing that it will not be easy all the time to hear and to take in and to accept and to respond to. And so I don't want to cause offense and I don't want to make it any harder. We need the gospel because it, um, and we need to guard it and protect it because it shows us the idols. It shows us what's going on in our heart. It brings us to a place of greater sanctification and holiness, but also, and it is the only thing that does that. Nothing else does that. But also, it, it drives even our, our ethics, even why we do good things, why we do the things that we do, why a believer would do good things because of the gospel. And scripture is filled with that message. I've learned as a parent how hard to answer the word why is. How much easier it is to say do something, right? Why? Because I said so, right? If I, you know, because I said so, right? Why should I be honest? Why should I love this person? Why should I forgive them? Why should I serve them? Why should I not sin? Why should I not say that word or do that thing or act that way or think those things or feel that? Or even feel that. Why not? Well, why do we forgive others? Because we've been forgiven. We don't forgive others because we want everyone to forgive us. We don't forgive others because it leads to great relationships down the road. We don't forgive others because of what it accomplishes or because it brings peace. We forgive others ultimately, first and foremost, because we have been forgiven. We have been more forgiven than we will ever have the opportunity to forgive someone else. So we forgive out of gratefulness that we've been forgiven. That's why we do it. Why do we walk in humility? Why do we live with humility and seek to have humility? Because no one has ever displayed more humility than Jesus. And he did it for us. Even to the point of dying. Even to the point of being separated from his father. Why do we seek to be humble? Because he was humble. And because that is what our whole life exists because of. Why do we want to live out the love that we have? Why do we not just speak of it, but live it in our actions? Because that's what God did. God didn't just say, I love you. He made something happen. He did something about it. And he didn't have to. He didn't have to. You could, look at it, you could look at why should we be good husbands and wives. Well, the New Testament tells us because Jesus loves the church. The church is the bride of Christ. Husbands, how do you treat your wives? Wives, how do you treat your husbands? You love them sacrificially for their sake, not for your own. We're even good in a marriage because of the gospel, because of what Jesus did. That's really, that's the biblical reason to be good in a marriage, to be humble, to forgive, to not do bad things. The, the, the most biblical scriptural reason that you could give to be a good person all comes from the gospel. And if it's coming from something that's not the gospel, then it's not good. Ellie and I began to recognize a few years ago that we were falling into this place of rationalizing and justifying everything that we were doing because we would think that it would lead to a better outcome. We'd say like, well, if I do this, then it will be better. And that's what God wants me to do, right? God wants me to do this thing, this hard thing usually, that may not seem like what everybody would do, but because it's the right thing, it will lead to something better, right? I've got this friend and I can't stand him. But if I treat him a certain way, 
even though it's hard, that in the end, that friendship will do better. That I teach my kids to do these things and live this way. Why? Because in the end, they will be better people because of it. They will do better things. Their life will go better because of it. Even if it's hard right now. Here's why I get up and do what I do, because it will make things better in the end. People should look at us and say, they are making the right choices. They are making the hard choices, but they're the right choices, and they lead to something better. And that's not why the Bible tells us to do good things. It's because it leads to something better all the time. There are times that we're going to be called to to treat others a certain way, to live a certain way, to give things up in a certain way that won't make our life better that won't always make the friendship last even. But we do it because of what Christ has done for us. We do it because of what the gospel says to us about that thing. And there's all kinds of reasons why I think we allow the gospel to change and allow it to be adapted and and we take things out and add things. And a lot of times it's just pragmatism. We say, practically speaking, what's the gospel accomplishing? Maybe there's a time when we need to take a break from that and talk about something else, right? right? Maybe there's a time in the life of a church or in the time of a family or the time of a relationship or the time in your relationship with God where you're like, there's something else he wants to show me that's different from this. There's something else that we need to take a time out and work on and talk about and focus on. You know, we need more people. We need more money. We need to get to a better place or a healthier place. And so we need to take some time to focus on that thing And then we'll come back to the gospel, sure, you know. And the gospel's there, it's there, you know, we all, yeah, right, we all agree, okay, good, everybody agrees. Anybody not like the gospel? No, don't say that. Okay, good, we're good. Sometimes pragmatism just leads us to that. Sometimes the very culture that we create leads us away from the gospel. The Christian culture that we create. The words we use, the way we talk, the way we deal with our problems, the books that we read, the things that we let each other care about, Sometimes those are the things that take us away from the gospel because we begin to just care about those things. And so what does he say? Well, first of all, so who are we? It took me a while to get here, but who are we? We are a community of people who are built on the gospel. We're a family, we're a group collectively, but we're a group that is about the gospel that comes from the gospel, that lives in the gospel, and all of our hope, all of our hope is in the gospel. Tomorrow and the next day and the next day. We are a gospel community. That's who we are. That is who the church is called to be. We are a community, a family that is saved by living in and dependent on the gospel. But the gospel is a word, it is a message, and it is found somewhere. And so we also must be about that thing. Paul says in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, or towards the end of 1 Corinthians, he says, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, that is how we hold fast to the gospel. So we as a community, we need this. How do we ensure that we're not letting the gospel be polluted, that we're not letting it be changed, that we're not taking away or adding? That we start with God's word. We are a gospel community, and we begin always with God's word. We appeal to this. We look at this. We live this. And it is not always easy. But we say that's where we're going to start. It amazes me how much we, and we, I mean like the church, all the churches, the church that I've ever known, that I've ever been a part of, it amazes me how much we could talk about the Bible without actually being in the Bible, individually ourselves. How much we can say about the Bible and feel like we know about the Bible without actually reading the Bible very much, without depending on it as the word of life, which is what it is, the very thing that keeps us alive. It amazes me how much we think that we know what it says, but we're really just listening to other people telling us what it says all the time. We're listening to other people's thoughts and other people's opinions and other people's takes on it. 
It amazes me how easy it is to read scripture with filters that come with our experiences, with our life stages, and even how much our idols can influence what we think the Bible's saying. That's why we're a community. Because there are things that are harder for me to see in the truth of God's word. But when I'm with others in God's word, then maybe they can see those things. So, who we are as a gospel community, and what we are is we are starting with God's word. And I say that because even though this all seems kind of like, okay, stuff to think about, stuff to care about maybe, but what do we do? This is supposed to be the vision of our church, right? Where are we going? What are we doing? Before we ever get to where we're going, before we ever get to how we get there, we start here. Not because we haven't been here in the past. Our church has cared about God's word and our church has cared about the gospel. But wherever we go in the future, it must be upon the power of the gospel. It must be done in the gospel and its power. And it must be speaking of what the gospel has already done in our lives. It must be rooted in God's word. And the only way that we can do that is if we're all in God's word together. So next week, I'm going to give everybody a, some stuff to read in God's word, like a, like a plan. Just read this today, read that tomorrow, read the next one after. You guys are all familiar with these things. They're called like Bible reading plans. Maybe it'll be a bookmark. Maybe it'll be on the internet. I'm not sure yet. But it's simple. And if you're already reading the Bible and you're doing it on your own and you have something, that's great. But if you don't, and in my experience, most people don't. It's a real struggle to be in God's word on a regular basis. I want to take a season and I want us to be in God's word together. I want us to be starting from there. Because like I said, wherever we go, whatever we do, it has to be from here. And we're meant to study this together as a gospel community. And we're meant to apply it to our lives together, to encourage each other with it. We must be fluent in the gospel. We must understand what that phrase even means. And it's always going to come out of here. This is all about the good news. The good news that God, who, again, made us, who had the idea to make us, who said, I'll be glorified in a relationship with them. Who in his infinite goodness never stops being good. Despite our rebellion. Despite our lack of trust. He is trustworthy. We don't trust him. He is worth following. We don't follow him. He is worth believing. We don't believe him oftentimes. And yet in his, in his goodness... Even in that, even in our rebellion, what did he do? His own son, he sends to experience humiliation, to be a servant to the very people that God created, and to ultimately even experience separation from God. He pursues us. He pursues us. He pursues us. We're supposed to pursue each other because of that. He says, if a sheep goes away, go get the sheep. If people wander, if people go, bring them back, get them, pursue them. Why? Because that's what I did for you. Because that's what I've done for you. Because the good father, the gracious father, ran out to meet his son. And then when his other kid was being a huge pain, he was like, I'm going to deal with you too, and I'm not going to get mad. Just come into the party. It's such good news. It's such incredibly good news that we can repent, that we can have life. And the great news about it is that as hard as it is to believe, the gospel is, is enough. And it's going to be enough tomorrow, and it's going to be enough the next day, and it's going to be enough the day after that. And so we don't have to come up with anything else. So clearly, I'm phoning it in right now. I didn't have to come up with anything this week. It was just the gospel, right? And there it is, right? Next week is when we get to talk about some of the, the nuts and bolts of this. Like, what does our response to the gospel mean for us as a church? 
And how do we do that in the world that we live in and in this city and in this community? So as we spend some time in worship and as we spend some time in prayer, let us be grateful for and let us worship our God who has pursued us and will continue to pursue us. And let's just celebrate and revel in all that comes with the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. And we have all kinds of reasons for wanting to move on from the gospel. Oftentimes, it's just a misunderstanding, thinking that it's basic and we're beyond it now. Thinking that, yes, the gospel's okay for a while, but as we grow or as we mature, obviously you expect more out of us. You expect us to be able to do things on our own for once. You expect us to be able to not need you, to not have to depend on you. You expect us to justify ourselves. You expect us to begin to be able to live in a way that we can actually finally earn your favor. And what you tell us throughout your word and we have experienced is that that's not the case. That you are most glorified when we are looking to you and depending on you as our justification. We thank you, God. We are profoundly grateful for what your son has done for us. We are changed by that. And our prayer is that we would be a group of people who would be able to be obedient to you because of what you've done, not in order to get something out of you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. God, you are a good, good father. Um, You have been good to us. You continue to be good to us, and you promise us that you will continue to be good to us long into the future, Father. Our prayer is that we would simply trust you, that we would trust that you are enough and that your gospel is enough. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.